Hi everyone, welcome back to The Truth About Success. This is where we interview successful people from all walks of life to just determine what their truths are about success. And the reason we're doing this is to share with you that is success something that uh, is only for the few? Or is this something that anybody can achieve if they follow a certain set of principles? And we've got a fantastic guest for you today. We've got Susanna Schofield. Let me tell you about this uh, lady. She's got an OBE. She's the Director General of the DSA. She's the CEO and founder of Pitch Sport. She's a public speaker. She's written a book. I mean, there's so much to go. She worked with BT. And think about this, you had a team of over 800 people and helped develop the turnover PL of over $800 million. Well, should I say, let me correct this. I've just come back from the US. It's actually 800 million pounds uh, that she developed there. So without further ado, I'm going to bring on our special guest today, the one and only Susanna Schofield. Hi, Susanna. Hello, Io. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a privilege. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's great to have you here. I've got so many questions. I'm so excited about our conversation today. And one of the first things I want to do, just so the audience understand, you're the Director General of the DSA, which is the Direct Selling Association. What does that, what does that, what's the Direct Selling Association and what does that entail? So well, it's, it's such an interesting job. So um, essentially anybody that sells direct to the consumer um, through a uh, channel to market, as it were, is regulated um, or at the moment voluntarily regulated. They choose to, uh, to self-regulate and join the, uh, the Direct Selling Association. And that essentially is just a code of conduct and practice that those companies um, abide by. Um, I, I think it's fantastic. I think that the reason I love the sector so much is it's so varied. Our members are completely from different walks of life but also everybody collaborates together um, it gives opportunities for anybody to earn some money um, whether you're you know degree educated or not educated it's a complete uh, complete opportunity um, and I love I love that about it so I I came in only on a six-month interim to help them because um, they were looking for someone else and four years later I'm still there and not going anywhere I absolutely love it it's been a fantastic journey and uh, I think for me now, the real key now is pushing that it shouldn't be self-regulated as an industry. It should be compulsory because there are some fly-by-night companies that pop up and do reputational damage to the industry. They so that's, that's 2022's target. I'm going to go knocking on the government's door. So I wish me luck. <laughs> well, look, just so we know, the, how big is the direct selling, uh, direct sales in the UK? Oh, so it's a phenomenal. We have over 600,000 um, uh, self-employed consultants that work within the industry and it contributes over three billion pounds to the UK economy. So it's a massive sector. And I mean, uh, through lockdown and through COVID, um, we saw huge growth just because people changed their shopping habits. So it's a phenomenal opportunity. And, uh, and as I said, one I love because there is no glass ceiling. And, you know, you in your intro, you said about well, are, there, are there key ingredients to success? And, you know, for me, without one, 
wanting to jump too much ahead, it always boils down to hard work. It always boils down to having to put the effort in. And I think for this industry in particular with the direct selling, it is, is an effort-based industry, but the rewards are so phenomenal when you go down that path correctly. It's, um, it's fascinating to watch. And I think through COVID, having watched the entrepreneurship of people that haven't been able to social sell, how they've got around it has been inspiring, absolutely inspiring. So you talked about, because uh, I've always looked at direct sales as being the alternative option. There are certain routes to market. You can be a sports personality. You can go down this. You can get your education. You can do this. But direct sales to me is an alternative to being successful in many ways. I think so. Well, I think it just gives, as you say, it gives you the opportunity. Um, and, you know, and it, it, we, we recently actually had our 55th annual general meeting and we asked everybody there to give three words in their opinion that summarised the sector. And one word that came up time and time again was opportunity. Then it was community. Um, and it is that feeling of, you know, it, it is what you make it. If you believe you can be successful and you put the effort in, then there's absolutely it's there for the taking. And I love that there's, there's no real rigour, there's no real right or wrong. It's just, it is that opportunity to go forward and do it. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. I love it. I like what you just said. I said there's no glass ceiling, no glass ceiling. So moving from there to pitch sports, what's, what's that all about? So Pitch Sports is a tech business. It's a fan engagement app um, and it works across football, motorsports and boxing. Um, so if anybody wants to download, they can download Pitch Footy or Pitch Boxing, etc. Um, and essentially, we just engage with the fans. We talk to them about their sport. Um, we're very neutral. So although we work with all the Premier League uh, football clubs and the championship, we don't, you know, we, we ask the questions and gain the fans data. So we allow people to predict scores. We allow people to have a look at what they think who they want their starting 11 to be and then we aggregate all of that information share it back to the fans so um, it's fascinating to see uh, we do very similar in BTCC and motorsports which has been interesting to see how actually when you when you think about success for me it's always about aligning with somebody and making sure that what they need is, is you know is the target points that you hit and it's been very interesting working with the football world and then the motorsports world and the difference between the dynamics and the strategy and the politics is is completely separate but then you add in okay. boxing, which is like the Wild West boxing. It's completely crazy. So that then becomes an even, you know, that we have to run the businesses. Although the technology is incredibly simple, similar, we have to run the business in three completely different silos because, the, you know, the, the way you talk to the fans in those sports is, is, is night and day. So, and you just talked about boxing. And I know on the conversations we've had in the past, uh, you, you, you're big into women boxing i mean that's the next big thing i am so in twin so one of the things when we got into boxing in the app is i actually realized and it became abundantly clear um that the safeguarding for females in boxing is shocking um and i and it, it actually it worried me a little if i'm honest so i use lockdown to um to get my license so i'm the only female uk boxing license um holder as a promoter so we now have a stable of women, which is fantastic, really looking after them from a, um, a health and safety perspective, from a safeguarding perspective, sensible training, doing lots of research now and working with some amazing companies about, you know, how the female brain interacts when it does get hit, what the best way of training is and all of those sorts of things, which 
for me is so important to take this sport forward. And, you know, the thing in female boxing I still find incredible is it wasn't in the 2012, it wasn't in the 2008 Olympics. The first Olympics was 2012 when it was actually recognized as a sport. And I think that's, you know, judo and everything else was there, but just not female boxing. And in those nine years, nearly 10, it's gone from strength to strength. And last Friday, actually, we put the first, um, the company, promotion company is called Unified Promotions. Last Friday, we put the first all-female fight card on in Sheffield. It was a phenomenal success. It was aired on Sky TV um, and it was great. It went really well. And we had some amazing sponsors that stepped up to be, um, you know, to be leading edge, to do something a little bit different and trailblaze women's boxing. But for me, it's a phenomenal sport. Um, we, you know, they move fast. It's two minute rounds. It's rapid. It's interesting. So, uh, so yeah, so I'm excited on that next bit of the journey because we're probably only six months into that company. And, um, and yeah, no, it's, it's very good. It's, it's, um, it's not something I thought I'd do, but given lockdown and having the time, I thought I might as well get my promoter's license and give it a go. <laughs> wow. Well, I know, I know nothing stops you, Susanna, and you, I'm sure you, you got so many other ideas and things you want to do. But, you know, and we're going to come back to this topic because I think the women are taking over. Uh, that's, that's what's happening uh, globally. But you now dealing with boxing, uh, motorsports, you know, uh, football, you're in that arena where you're dealing with a lot of professional, successful people. What would be your two or three characteristics that you've seen that is sort of common across that threshold with successful people? Do you know, it's, it's, I think it's twofold. I think it's determination. And that for me is absolutely anybody who wants to be a professional sports person or a, a serial entrepreneur or an MD, you have to be determined to get there. It's, uh, it's no good waking up one morning and thinking, oh, do you know what? I don't really fancy it today. Whether you do or not, you have to do it. And I think with that then becomes that, it, it, it is that dedication, but it's also that commitment. You, you have to absolutely say, right, I'm going to do this. And, you know, I remember people always telling me when, when I first started, it was that Royal Mail journey of actually, you know, write your goals down, do your goals, um, you know, put a date on it, sign it, go with it. So that, that the determination has to be there. The commitment to deliver has to be there. But underneath all of that has to be belief. And I think for me, those three ingredients just equal complete success, because if you don't believe you can do it, no one else is going to give you the, that belief to do it. So I think for me, they're the three things that kind of really culminate in, in being, being successful. Just, just think about that, because belief, I'm a, I'm a big person when it comes to that, your belief system, uh, your belief system guides you, it imprisons you or it empowers you. What, what? How do you, I'm just talking now, we're talking to just anyone just looking at this video and you go, where does that belief come from in the first place that you at one stage as an athlete or a footballer saying, you know what, I can be good at this and then you commit to it. Do you know, I'm going to be controversial now, Ayo, and I don't know whether you'll agree with this, but I think, I think belief comes from failure. I think sometimes you have to fail and pick yourself back up and think, do you know what, I can do this. Not necessarily knowing you can, not necessarily knowing you can, but having the confidence to give it another go. And I think if I hadn't set businesses up that had failed and if I hadn't have had troubles along the way, 
I just think it almost becomes, it breeds to complacency and it doesn't deliver that determination and that commitment to do it. So for me, I think failure is a huge part of a belief system because, you know, going back to the boxing world, it's always, it doesn't matter how many times you get knocked down, it matters how many times you get back up again. And that's so important. And I think that belief is once you dust yourself off and you think I can go again, there's a certain amount of belief. And then if that's successful, you can then build on that and take it forward. But I think... I think it's very easy to wake up and say, you know, build it and they will come and this is the way it's going to be. But actually, it always takes twice as long as you expect it to. And it normally costs twice as much money as you hope it will. But it, it, that is that kind of infrastructure of building new, new, new businesses and moving. But yeah, for me, I think, I think some form of, of, um, of that real belief comes, yeah, comes, comes from failure and from just having the, the, you know, the tenacity to get back up and go again. Well, they say failure is the breakfast of, of, of champions because they use that to aspire. And tastes horrible, like, though, doesn't it, Io? Tastes it, horrible. It, it might be the breakfast of champions, but it's so bitter. <laughs> well, but so many people want this instant success, and it doesn't exist. It, it, you, it's trial and, you know, it's trials, it's failures, it's ups, it's downs. There's so many challenges to it. So. So, uh, Susanna, where, where did you, did you always have a clear path of where you were going to go? Did you wake up one day and you say, you know what, I'm going to do direct sales, I'm going to do pitch sports, um, I'm going to get into boxing. Did you always have that clear path or was this something that evolved? Do you know, I always, now I always want to say, yes, this has been a complete strategic decision, but it's not. It's been, uh, it's been an opportunity that's come along. And I always say when one door closes, it's because something else swings open. You might have to kick that door open, but there's something else that swings open. So I started at Royal Mail. It was really, I did a few bits and pieces jobs before then. You know, I nannied, looked after some kids, did some other bits and pieces. When I started at Royal Mail, I started on the phone, um, really, you know, just basic answering calls. And within a very short time, I've managed to move up to look after everyone who answered the phones. And then that was my first bit of management. And they sent me on a course. And then from there, I actually went out onto the, onto the streets and kind of sold at the time of what we called account management with a portfolio. Then I ended up managing and it just, it was literally just a natural progression within. But interestingly, because when you say to people, you know, I spent nearly 20 years at Royal Mail, it's such a phenomenal amount of time. But because I changed jobs almost every 18 months and worked in different fractions from sales to marketing to the post office to operations, it was almost always like starting another job. Everything changed, the way of working changed. And I think it was... I, I think I have an awful lot to thank them for because they believed in me in a very male-dominated environment. They absolutely believed in me. And I never felt it, I never felt it hindered me. I never felt it held me back. Um, but as a business, they were very open to letting people try and grow and support and encourage as long as you, you know, you hit your goals and you showed you were working hard. Um, and from there, I got to a point where, as you rightly say, you know, managing hundreds of people, turning, you know, hundreds and hundreds, millions of pounds of business was phenomenal. We set, I set that, um, the new business sales that we set were just three of us. There were myself and I had two members of staff and it took four years, but then we had 800 people and, uh, you know, 500 people and 800 million turning. So we didn't do badly from, from what we thought when it was all privatized and we were, oh my gosh, we're gonna have to go out and sell some stuff rather than just getting it by default. Uh, it was a lovely journey to go on and, and when I look back now I'm not really sure how we managed that or how I managed it um, 
but at the time it was just the day job you just got up and you did it and it was you know there was pressure and of course there was always um you know things to do and um goals and objectives and you know the whole kind of remit of it but um when I finally got to the end of that, I thought I'd almost done it. So um, I became their commercial director and looked after wholly owned subsidiaries. So set up um, micro businesses for Royal Mail, really, for want of a better word, uh, which was fascinating and really good fun. Um, but I suddenly thought, you know, I'm going to do that for myself. So, uh, so I moved into setting up pitch. Um, and before then, actually, the direct selling world, I'd dabbled in a uh, setting up a direct selling company uh, when I was off on my maternity leave with my first daughter, Brooke. Um, but realised that, you know, the funding you need behind that and to make it really work, you need a massive, massive infrastructure. But that was my first dabble into direct selling. And I understood then the enormous opportunity within the industry. Um, so I kind of had a few side hustles myself, worked for other organisations and then thought, no, we'd set up Pitch Sport. But that, if I'm honest, was completely... Um, it was it was really born out of a conversation that having a tech background set an app up for Royal Mail for the shopping quite like the idea of apps being a way to communicate with people at the time my husband was moaning bitterly that nobody listened to sports fans and that nobody listened to football fans and I actually jokingly said if I build you an app that you can moan at will you stop moaning at me it was oh that's actually quite a good idea so I kind of sat down and scoped you a lot. And the irony of this is, Iris, I don't just listen to my husband now moaning about football. I listen to hundreds of thousands of other people listening about it, moaning about it too. So I can't get away from it. It's my own worst nightmare. Um, but no, it was, and, and then it just grew from there. And then um, we had the, the kind of the football was there and that gave us the team sports. We then developed the motorsports because that moved a track and then we needed one-on-one. -on -one. And the one-on-one, -on -one, we could have done tennis, we could have done golf, but I've always been a massive boxing fan. So I thought, you know what we'll be a little bit selfish and we'll put it into boxing but um it's also a very fragmented market so the opportunity was there but i think it's no it's not been um it's it's kind of been you know as i say the the dsa job was taken on as an interim position but then i just saw the opportunity saw the you know saw what we could do with that if we got it really right and just wanted to deliver on that um so yeah i'd love to say my career path has been that way but you know even down to writing the book if I'm honest you know there was a moment then when I, I set about and all I did was write I sat on um uh, Vince Cable at the time his um uh, uh, what was it called it was the red tape initiative about how to cut through red tape for small businesses and I wrote a small white paper and that got picked up by one of the day you know I think it was the telegraph or the times published it and then a publishing house, Kogan Page, contacted me and said, this is a really lovely kind of like the way of explaining what not to do. Do you think you could turn it into a book? And I thought, well, how hard can that be? Turns out it's really difficult, really difficult, actually. Turning, turning a couple of hundred words into 80,000 was just... Um, but it was great fun oh, to do, well, yeah. absolutely brilliant. And uh, and I, you know, it was great. We, and the nice thing about the book was we worked with a hundred individual companies to get their feedback on what good looked like. So the book's mind the gap and creating successful business strategy. And it was about at the time when tech, you know, we're going back into 2009-10. So it was a long, you know, a long time when tech was still developing. And actually what's interesting about that was measuring the gap between what actually happens in a company, between what employees think 
between what customers think happens in a company and actually what they want to see from that brand. And that gap is very dangerous. So it was a kind of a concept of be careful what you say to your employees and how you think people perceive you, because do your customers actually perceive you in that way? Um, and, you know, and it was an interesting narrative to go down and, and learn, but it was a great opportunity to, um, to, you know, to learn lots about lots of companies. So, Susanna, I mean, there's a lot of content there, but you started, let's just get this right. You said you started working at BT. Rommel. Rommel. Not BT, Rommel. Sorry. Not, not Roma. The, the letter's not the phone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was all, Roma, it was all one in the good old days, I believe. It was called the phone exchange, wasn't it? And it was the all phone exchange, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so you started Royal Mail on the phone. Yes. And you evolved through all the different things and took on different challenges and ended up being in a position where you built a team of uh, hundreds of people underneath you and take you through that. And, and I think this is very important to our audience that they understand. And you did say this when opportunity knocks, you know, you've got to be ready for it. You've got to be ready for it. And sometimes you've got to kick that door open. So it's a transformation. So do you have any qualifications? Do you have a university degree? Do you? I, I, I do now, but I didn't at the time. And it's actually something I've gone back and got. So when I started at Royal Mail, I had GCSEs and a couple of A-levels, and that was it, hence the fact that I started on the phones. Um, and I was lucky enough that they were able to, you know, do the training, et cetera. And then eventually they actually yeah. paid for me to do, to go to um, our Saeed Oxford Business School and, and, and learn from there, which was phenomenal and a great opportunity. Uh, but no, I didn't. I didn't have any qualifications. And I, I, left, I, I left school at 16, 17. I just wanted to get out and earn a living. I had no desire to go and have to go and do a degree no desire to learn and if I'm honest though I didn't really know what I was good at I just didn't know what I could do so I kind of had a succession of jobs I said I nannied I worked in a restaurant I and then I sort of found myself looking down and if I'm honest I think it was looking for a job that um, looked more interesting, was nece was kind of Monday to Friday at the time, because that's what seemed important in my narrative, not now. I mean, everyone knows in live sport, there's not a moment you're not working. But uh, but yeah, there was. I kind of wanted it to be something that was simplistic and also that paid well. And I thought, you know what, if it pays enough money, I'll go in. And then I suddenly realised that actually talking to people and selling was a skill that I could probably develop and hone in on. And then it just really snowballed from there. But I do remember we had an um, a reorganization at Royal Mail and I, we had these kind of one-to-one -one meetings and I remember the gentleman at the time who was managing me telling me the job I should apply for and I said absolutely no way I'm going to apply for this one up here and he laughed and he said well don't be stupid that's like it, Royal Mail's I'm all about grades you know you're an SV1 or a 5L or whatever it is because it's government where the time was government owned so you can't, no one jumps grades you can't possibly do that so I said, well, if there's an interview process, what's the harm in giving it a go? And I remember then you could only apply if it was kind of like, you know, when you pick your schools, you could only apply for two jobs. And I thought, do I go safe or do I apply for the two jobs I really want? So I applied for the two jobs I really wanted and then got interviewed for them and got one of them, which I'm very lucky for. But I think it was that moment where I remembered I was so only quite young or probably only have been probably only my early, very early 20s, um, if as old as that, actually. And I just remember thinking, why not? Why is someone telling me 
that I am too young to do that or I don't have the capabilities of doing that, you know, fail in an interview, but actually take the learnings from what you failed to achieve and then be able to put that to practice. But at least you've shown your intention as to where you want to go. And I remember in the interview, one of the, one of the people interviewing me said, um, do you not think this is a little bit above you? And I said, well, no, and I don't think you do either. Otherwise, we wouldn't be wasting either of our time, would we? So I think you, can't, you don't want to be cheeky. But I think sometimes if you see an opportunity, it's that belief again, isn't it? It's back to those three words. You know, you've got to be dedicated. You've got to be determined. You've got to have commitment and you've got to believe. And yeah. I just think I thought I, I looked around at other people doing it and thought I can do that. I can. So I just have to believe I can and give it a go. And don't get me wrong. I, there were moments where I thought, what am I doing? <laughs> this is crazy. I'm completely unqualified for this. But, uh, but proof is in the pudding. And, um, and it was the start of what ended up being a spectacular career at Royal Mail. I'm very grateful. Yeah, well, there's a saying I have, never question your ability, but always question your performance. Because anything is possible and, and nobody's better than you. They're just ahead of you. But I, yeah. I think you've, you've just uh, touched on another key to success is so many people are not successful because of other people's opinions about them. Or so, so just you're in a situation where you could have easily been told, why are you applying for two grades up? You just stay where you are. And that's one of the big things I see with people is People say, just stay where you are, stop being ambitious. I mean, what, what would be your response to that? Oh, absolutely. I think there's twofold. Do it because you love it and do it because you want to do it. Don't ever do it for money. So for me, the only time I found myself really unhappy is when I've chased a dollar or a pound, depending which country you're in. <laughs> the, um, and, and that struggles for me because actually it feels insincere. And I think when you chase money, you behave differently and your actions are different. But I think if you enjoy what you do and you're passionate about what you do, then absolutely you should push every boundary because then it's driven by something that's a little bit deeper. It's driven by, it's driven by aspirations. It's driven by enjoyment. It's driven by motivation because you feel passionate about what you're doing. So for me, I think you should you should push until, as you say, I love that phrase is never question your ability, only question your performance. And I think there are some times when you realize that you can't do that role. And that's actually it's not necessarily your skill set. And then there comes a very mature moment of having a conversation saying, I can't take this forward anymore. I need to step to one side or I need to put someone else in to do that job or I need to get some mentoring in place or I need something to be able to help me burst that because no one can know everything. No one can. You know, we all have this great journey that we have to go on. And I think the key is, is not being arrogant enough to ever think you know best and to listen. And, you know, with my team, we have a call every, every beginning of every week and I say to them, what are we doing wrong? What am I doing wrong? What can we do better? How do we make this week better than last week? How do we, you know, how do we get to the end of the week and say, we haven't made that mistake again? And I think as long as you encourage people to be honest and open and enjoy their roles, then I think, you know, I think it's, it's worth doing. But no, you, you should never, never not try. I think it's it, the key to success is just about trying. And never let somebody else's opinion about you hold you back. Absolutely. And I always believe you're going to get advice, make sure the advice is from a qualified source, somebody who's an expert in there, but you, you've really got to be careful about that. So Susanna, you left school when you were 16, you worked your way up the ladder. Tell us a little bit about your childhood and your upbringing. 
Oh, do you know, I had a great child and weirdly actually an only child up until I was 11. And then my mum and dad had, uh, had my little sister who um, at the time I was like, no, I'm not very happy about this at all. But, uh, but no, it's great. It's good. Um, and I always had a full house, always had lots of people coming and going. Um, it was lovely. It was just, it was, you know, it was a very loving, very caring family. My mum, my mum was a professional cake decorator. So she worked, um, she worked from home. And actually, ironically, she made the most amazing cakes. But because it was like a busman's holiday, we just got fed Mr. Kipling the whole time. It was like, why can't we have one of your cakes? I'm not making for you, I'm making for money. <laughs> but I grew up in that kitchen table environment where she just rolled out, you know, very professional cakes, but from her, from the kitchen table. And if she was working, we all had to get out and there was never, you know, it was, wasn't the time to come and do. Um, and my dad worked for the government, was a civil service as an electrical engineer. So he worked very, very hard. Um, and uh, yeah, no, it was, it was, it was lovely. It was, um, it was just kind of quite simple, if I'm honest. No, no frills, no graces, not a great deal of money, just a good, clean kind of, you know, upbringing and went, moved, did some schools, etc. And yeah, there's, there's not, you always feel, don't you, you should have some great story about your childhood that defined who you are. But, um, but no, I just, I just knew I always wanted to work. I think, I think my, you know, my father had a degree that he was incredibly proud of um, and actually went back to do a master's, etc. And I think his disappointment was me not wanting to take my, you know, my education any further. I just wanted to get out into the business world. I just wanted to work. I wanted to earn money. I wanted to be out there. And I, I think school for me was probably the hardest time. I just... I just didn't see the point. I just wanted to get out and be doing things and moving fast and not sitting talking about what could be done. I wanted to go and experience it. So I think um, I think my latter teenage years was quite a challenge for my parents. Um, I, I very, very foolishly got married very young. Um, I married uh, my first husband at 18 um, and I didn't know him well enough and my parents were deeply disappointed um, and it ended very badly. And I think if anything, if I look back, up until then, it had been almost smooth sailing. Um, but I think that period in my life and, um, and realising what a terrible mistake I'd made and having to live with the consequences of that, I think then defined me that actually you, you have to be accountable for your actions. You have to be the one that then goes on and, and responds correctly and cause and effect. And I say it to my girls all the time, you do this and that happens. You know, it's, it's so important to get that right. And I, I, I got that horribly wrong. Um, I upset my father enormously through that period of time. Um, and yeah, and I, I think I had, to, I had to go get a better job. I had to recover. I had to find myself somewhere else to live. I had to, I had to do a lot quite quickly. And at 18, um, married and divorced is not ideal it's not it's no, no badge anyone really wants to uh, wants to hold you know to death is depart um is uh, you know something that shouldn't be shouldn't be just reneged on very easily so i think that year was a very important time in my life where i just thought I, I define myself now. It's up to me whether I, phrase it, whether I put my big girl pants on and I get on with it and I deliver, or whether I put my head in my hands and say, "Well, is me? This all went wrong." And I and I took option one. I thought, "No, I, I'm I'm better than this. I'm stronger than this, and nothing is going to stop me doing what I want to do." And um, and then yeah, off I went. Thanks, thanks, thanks for sharing that. And and again, another good point that you just made there because. Sometimes we make the make a decision, and it might not be a right decision, or things might not work out. But you shouldn't let that imprison you and hold you back. You should let that define you. Learn that lesson and move on. Would you agree with that? Completely. And it's so strange because when you know when I talk to people about that first marriage, and people say, "Oh my gosh, you must really hate him," and blah. I think Do you know actually, I'd like weirdly, I'd like to shake his hand and thank him because I think he defined my 
sense of self-worth to some extent. I think walking away from something that's that's not going well is very difficult. And I think it's sometimes much easier to stay. Um, but to kind of shake yourself up and say, no, actually, this isn't what I signed up for. This isn't acceptable. I'm not going to be treated like this. And to walk away gives you gives you a feeling of power. But like you say, you we, no, no, we, nobody wakes up in the morning saying, do you know what, I'm deliberately going to make a mistake today. People make mistakes, things happen, but nobody, or very, or, you know, I defy people that go, do you know what, today I'm going to deliberately mess up in such an epic way and let's see what happens. <laughs> so, uh, but no, I, I think I think it's taking those learning. So, you know, I said earlier, wasn't it? What success is failure. It's taking those failures. It's learning from those failures. It's not repeating them, but it's allowing them to empower you to know that you know not what to do, and therefore you know what to do when you move forward. And I think that's so important because, as you say, it can define people. It can become part of their fabric, and they can spend an awful, you know, an awful long time getting over things. Um, and and yeah, I just I think you have to take the positives from every negative. And say listen how do i change this round how do i learn from this experience and how do i make sure it never ever happens again there's a the, you know there's a little thanks again there's a little exercise i do and I, they tell us we're going to live till we're about 85 or so and i mean i'm going for 100 years anyway uh but what i say to people if you take your age you are now from 85 that tells you how many more years you've got left why would you let two or three years or five bad years destroy the next 20 30 40 50 years of your life it just it just bugs me why people do that and 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 just coming back to your book mind the gap because i think that gap is about also defining where you are and where you could be or want to be and what's in the middle i mean what are those key points of that i mean you talked about the book already but that gap what are the sort of gaps you found between people's perception and reality? It's so fascinating because really I think it comes down to just not listening. I think it comes down to looking at certain things in isolation, not taking account for any external factors that might have impact in it, and then just not taking feedback or listening. So one of the great things we did within the book was we did an employee engagement survey and we did a customer survey. And most companies do those in blissful isolation of each other. And they look at the results and they go, okay, well, we'll do that with our employees and we'll do that with our customers. But if you did it together and you ask some ergonomically written questions that actually marry up, if your employees say one thing and your customers say something else and there's a big gap, that's a worry. So adjust that gap so they match, because then if, you're, if your employees are achieving exactly what your customers want, you get better success. Of course you do, because everybody's happy and then it grows and it builds from there. So I think it's about measuring, as you say, that perception versus reality, but also about listening to where those gaps are and understanding and taking it on. And I, I think for me, one of the biggest things I've done is, is, is take counsel from people. If I do this, what do you think might happen? Can I just ask your advice on this? Get mentors, get people in who've been through it, come out the other side and tell you. And as you say, not hanging your hat on the one thing that went wrong, or, but looking at the bigger picture. And I think it's so easy, and especially the last two years in lockdown, I think it's been so easy for people to get the narrative in their head of negativity and I can't because, or it won't work because. And I think we just have to say, no, do you know what? That might not work. So how do we make it work? If we fundamentally believe that's what we need to do, how do we now make it work? And if all of these obstacles are in the way, can we move them? Because there might be one obstacle there that can't be moved, you know, that, that it might be that there's a piece of land that you can't cut through and that's owned by someone they're not selling. And so how do we go around it? How do we do? What do we look at? Or do we just say, actually, 
fail fast. Great idea, but it's either too soon or it's too late or it's not going to work. And I think listening, building your business foundations on strong, strong foundations that are are rooted in fact and data, not passion and ambition. And as much as important as that is, it's just making sure that you're doing what's tried and tested in your own way, but being able to still be innovative. But yeah, just make sure that that path is clear. Um, and I think, as you say, that that whole book, the whole gap between it was that perception. And mentally, it's taking that leap, isn't it? It's saying, actually, do you know what? I'm here. I can get to there. What's the quickest route? But what's the safest and most sensible route as well? Yeah, and, and there's always challenges or obstacles. And like I say, you've always got to find a way. I just believe there's always a way. Uh, I was fortunate to go to the um, to the NASA Center in Houston, in Texas. Uh, in fact, I was only there a few days ago. And what was amazing was seeing these. I mean, this 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 they've been to the moon twelve times. I didn't even realize they've been to the moon twelve times. You know, you just remember that famous first time. They've got Mars, and they showed you the lunar buggy and all this thing. And I thought. What was so exciting that I got the inspiration I got from it is the reason they're making these achievements is they're surrounded by people who think the same, the think that anything is possible. And they've these scientists have looked at things that you would say it's totally impossible, and they've made it possible. And 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 I just want to move gear to us because we've talked about your book, the DSA. And you talked about getting into direct sales and doing that as a side hustle at the time, because that's a great opportunity. It's a great segue, isn't it, into, biz, into the business world. Would you agree? Yeah, completely, completely. And I think the nice thing is, is although there's mentor programs and there's coaching, you can almost kind of suck it and see for want of a better phrase. You can do it how you want to do it. There's an, you know, it's, it's kind of a buy off the shelf infrastructure that you then get to say, how do I make it mine? How do I use my skill set? You know, some people do it online, some people sell face to face, some people do it virtually, some people do it through letters. You know, there's just this amazing way of doing stuff that it, you can make it bespoke. And I think there's the level of integrity when someone joins that industry is phenomenal for me. And I, you know, I, I just, I, I, I love watching people on their journey and then being able to go, I could do that. And what's so nice is when you get, you know, we've sadly not been able to get together as much for the last two years, but when you do get together with people, there's this lovely moment where others share and they say, I was exactly like you a year ago. And then I did this and I did that and I did this. And then, and then it's up there. And I said earlier about the words that they use when we talk about direct selling and community. I've never been in an industry where people are willing to share how they became that successful to other people. And I, I love that. It's that this is how I did it because so much of it's behind a closed door, isn't it? This is my secret to success. And no, it's not, it's just hard work. It's tenacity, it's belief, it's et cetera. You know, you have to, you have to be up a little bit earlier and go to bed a little bit later and, and essentially, and, and have a bit of luck. You know, you have to have a fair wind behind you, be in the right place at the right time. And we say, isn't it, there's a busy people make their own luck. And I think that's true. If you sit back and wait for it to fall on your lap, it won't. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great industry. And I've, um, I've loved watching, uh, love watching through. But coming back to your point, I think you're absolutely right. And I think it reflects in the Direct Selling um, Association and the world is 
people do what they believe they can do. So, you know, you're talking about NASA and putting man on the moon and Roger Bannister ran the four, first four minute mile and until then it was impossible. And then loads of people beat it. Hussein Bolt did the under, 10, under 100 meters in 10 seconds. Now loads of people do it. We almost become conditioned that, oh, oh, it is possible. But that breakthrough, that groundbreaking moment is just down in belief, isn't it? It's in your core system that you say, I am gonna push as hard as I can. And, you're going to have to be tenacious and driven and focused and, and, you know, get out of bed earlier than anyone else and put your running shoes on metaphorically. But if you believe you can do it, then it changes the mindsets of so many other people behind you. And I love that. I love the thought of even just doing something that makes somebody else feel, oh, well, she can, maybe I can. It's just the most empowering feeling in the world. And, and I, yeah, I, 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 live, I live to be able to help other people on their journey now. Hey, and I, I, you've said something that people do what they believe they can do. Did I get that right? That's yeah, people do what they believe they can do. Yeah. So what are your beliefs right now? If you're just listening to this uh, video, you've got to ask yourself, what belief is holding me back from greatness? What beliefs about myself from being that successful person? Because you can truly break through. And uh, what you said about be, being lucky. If you work hard enough, you get lucky. That's what I found. You know, I don't worry about being lucky. I just work real super hard. I go the extra mile. And it's amazing how lucky you get. And, and, and Susanna, you probably had this. You know, when you've worked so hard, you've, you've been through all the failures. You've picked yourself. You've dusted yourself down. You've gone back out. And then somebody turns around to you and they see you. And the lifestyle you have and you go, you're lucky. And you go like, sometimes I feel like going, are you serious? I mean, let me tell you what I've been through to get here. I bet you've had that happen to you. Completely, completely. And it's, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because I, I do, to some extent, I do think I'm lucky because I think there are an awful lot of people out there that work very hard too that don't necessarily come to, the, come to fruition as, you, as they would hope it would. So I'm always very grateful. I, would I say I, do, I think I'm lucky? No, I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful. And as you say, it's come with a lot of hard work. It's come with um, changing, changing who I am as an individual. It's come with fighting. It's come with, you know, pushing against the boundaries, changing things, not necessarily always saying what people want to hear. Um, and, and, you know, and, and manipulate, not manipulate is the wrong word, um, pushing and, 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 you know, questioning and asking. And I always say to my, I've got two girls and I fundamentally believe they can be whatever they want to be. It doesn't matter their colour, creed, age, sex. If they work hard, they're going to have to work hard. As I said, they're going to have to be tenacious, they're going to have to do, but it doesn't stop them now. You know, there's, I just think we have a world of opportunity out there if we, have, if we believe we can. And I, I love that they can go forward now. You know, we've had the whole women in business movement and all of those sorts of things, which is great. But actually now we're just out there getting on with it. And I think we should. And there's loads of people that still need our support. There's loads of countries that aren't as embracing as the Western world that we absolutely can't ignore. But I think given what the girls are growing up with, it's now important that, that you know, you, you get to the high echelons, don't you, where it's very lucky to be sat at a board table, but it's actually very nice to be able to come down and help other people in that lift and help them on their journey up there. And for me, being able to support people and help people grow and see what they can achieve is just so, so rewarding. Um, and then saying, you know, believe in it, go and give it a go. What's, you know, what's the worst that can happen? And I, and I love that. I think that's the narrative I'd like, you know, I'd like to, like my children to take forward for sure. So Susanna, on that, on that thread there, how, how, how do you cope with leadership as a woman? 
because that's that's probably sometimes not spoken enough about but the, there is still a challenge would you would you agree i mean it's 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 way way so better now than it was maybe 10 15 20 years ago but how would you cope well i, I again I, again this is a it's a risky thing here i'm going to be a bit controversial i i never want to see quotas for women in business ever and i feel very strongly about that um i want to get there under my own merit and i believe that as long as that next generation like you know i'm probably one of the last generations where would a woman work or would she have a family was a question like my girls growing up in school now is they will work um, that you know, there's 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 no there's no question in the fact that at 13 and 11, what you're going to do for your for your job, how you're going to earn money, how you're going to support yourself, and I think as long as that comes through, we don't need to force quotas. We need the right person for the right job, achieving the right goals. And, you know, you said earlier, never let your ability, you know, never worry about your ability, worry about your performance. And I think that's the key, isn't it? Is we get the right people in the right job, that just becomes the right way to move a business forward. And you know, I don't want to see discrimination. I don't want to see you know, we, we, you talk about diversity and inclusion, yet we live in a world that's almost too scared to ask any questions that might be challenging in case we offend. And you think, how can I possibly be inclusive if I don't understand what your needs are? And by understanding your needs, I have to ask those questions. And then that becomes that strange, oh no, but I better not because I don't want to offend. So I think we have a lot to learn. Um, but I absolutely, I, I think women in leadership, we, as, long as, we, we, as long as we're in the right job, and we're hitting those targets and we're doing ourselves, you know, we're doing ourselves justice and we are leading, genuinely leading, not just being forced into a job that we're uncomfortable with and don't enjoy doing it. Because managing people and leading people are very, very different things. And it's explain, I remember explaining to my team, if you manage people, you are needed every single day. If you disappear, that team falls off a cliff. If you lead somebody, you should be able to walk away at any time because they know the direction they're going in and you've led them down the right path. And if you put them on that right path, any good leader should be able to step to one side and say, off you go. And they should be disposable in their team because they've led their team to that conclusion. And I think for me, when I started at Royal Mail and worked up, the hardest part was learning. You know, you have one level of team and they employ and they employ and you suddenly get these layers of management that you need to get messages down through consistently. And you think, this isn't about managing people anymore. This is about leading. It's about showing by example. It's about behavior. It's about treating people as you'd want to be treated. And I, I think for me, it's almost irrelevant whether you're a woman or a man. Um, it's certainly relevant whatever color you are. I just think it's completely about being the right person for the right job and having a team who believe and, and have seen you deliver to, to warrant that space. So. And that question then, um, and I'm talking, I see a lot of women, and, I, and, and the reason I'm asking this question is there's a battle between, do I do family? Because that's like, like you say, that's kind of how you brought up, that's supposed to be my number one responsibility, or do I do business or get a career, go to work? I mean, what advice would you give somebody who's got that sort of dilemma in their life? I think you just have to do what's right for you. So for me, I've, I've always said I've lived to work. I absolutely love my job. I'm passionate about it. I can't imagine not. Now, my children have both been in full-time childcare since they were five months old. So that's 6 a.m. till 6 p.m., five days a week. That's not for everybody, Monday to Friday. But at the weekends, there was nowhere else I wanted to be than with my two children. And they have my dedicated time for an entire weekend. And I think we did everything that we'd have normally done from picking up school and all those bits. We 
crammed into a fun weekend. Um, I think they're very balanced kids. Um, I, you know, my eldest can make friends in an empty room if push comes to shove. She's just very, you know, she's very out there. Um, my youngest is incredibly, incredibly um, methodical and um, intellectual, uh, loves to read. And well, I don't know where she gets it from. She just sit quietly in the corner with a book and avidly digest it. Um, but I, they're very, they're very balanced girls, but it's not for everyone. And I think my, my, my advice to anybody was do what feels right for you. If you want to be a full-time mom and see your kids for five years, absolutely do it because you'll never get that time back again. And like you say, don't ever look back and regret those few moments that you made decisions that then impact on something so massive. But if you don't really want to work, I spent so many years feeling almost ashamed that I wasn't being a traditional mother and I carried on with my career. And actually there were moments where I thought I probably should give this up. But I, I'm a, I was a great mum at the weekend and there was nowhere else I wanted to be and that worked for me as an individual. So I think my advice is own what you want to do. Make sure you've got a brilliant support network. I could not have worked if I didn't have a supportive husband and I didn't have two amazing parents. So my mum and dad, you know, they help with the childcare, they're there. My network around me facilitates me to do that. Now they're older, they're absolutely fine. But I, you know, I, I do think you have to do what's right for you. I don't think there's a right and a wrong. I think there's many, many more men who are happy to be, um, be at home now and looking after the kids and take a more, a more you know, more active role. I think now there's actually paternity leave. You know, when I had Brooke and Willow, there was absolutely no, no paternity whatsoever. It was like, what's that? You know, lucky if he was allowed two hours off the desk to come to the birth, if I'm honest. It would ride straight back on it, whatever. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. I think it's much more recognised now that it's a dual role. And I think for kids as well, it's so important to have their father there as a figure to understand what's, you know, what's important and where it goes. But, yeah, my, my advice to anybody um, is just do what's right for you. Don't listen to anybody else you know deep down inside whether you want to be in a, whether you want to be working and have someone else look after your kids or whether you want to look after your kids and find a job like the direct selling world where you can do it the whole thing you know if you want to work flexibly that's why I love that sector so much because I I work full-time I sacrificed a great deal of my kids I I remember having an awful, awful moment where my um, eldest was in a Christmas play and, uh, and I didn't go to the Christmas play because we had a massive pitch at Royal Mail that day and I made the decision that that was more important. Rightly or wrongly, I thought I've got to go to that pitch. I can't not go. So about two weeks afterwards, I just, I couldn't live with myself and I, I sat her down and it, you know, it's, it literally tears welled and I said, listen, I made a massive mistake. My bad, I should never, ever have missed your Christmas play. And I feel mortified that I did. She looked at me straight in the eye and she said, were you not there? And I said, no, I wasn't there. I told you I wasn't coming. She said, oh, don't worry, mummy. There were loads of people in the audience. I was fine and skipped off. And I thought actually at the time, it was this really interesting. I'd driven myself crazy about that one decision not to go. I told her I wasn't gonna go, but she hadn't even really taken it in and didn't really care because there were lots of people and she was brilliant. But actually having that moment, it honed into me what was important. And what was important was I should have been there. So you have to weigh up occasionally and say, I'm not gonna to come to that meeting because this is more important. And I think in the early stages of my career, when I was still proving I could be a leader and I was still proving myself as a woman in a man's world, which I hate saying that, but along, those, along that thing, in my head, I don't believe I ever had to. I just think psychologically, I felt I had to prove that there was no way I wasn't gonna be at that meeting that had to take its priority. But actually I think now, and I think if anything's good has come out of the, you know, the pandemic and where we've been, 
is that people appreciate the value of time. They appreciate the value of being with a family. They appreciate the value of, of, of not, you know, touching people, hugging people and all that sort of thing. And I think if we can take one good thing, it's, it's yeah, it's, it's be, where you, be where you feel you should be because no one gives you that opportunity back. Absolutely. Thank you for that. So with that said, tell us about the OBE from the Queen. I mean, that, that is a, well, that's a great honor to achieve. And you got that for empowering women and helping businesses. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, it was a great surprise, a great surprise. Um, I got home from a, a wine tasting, actually, and, um, and I, I didn't know whether it was a joke or not. You know, I think, I think it was safe to say I was relaxed after my day at wine tasting with this very, very formal letter. By the time I'd opened it, I thought, gosh, you know, what is it? You know, what could it be? This looks really serious. It's going to be awful. And it was, you know, it was been awarded no view, which I had no idea about whatsoever. But as you say, for... Um, services to women and young people in business, which I love, you know, and I, I give a lot of time to help people. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's always, it's always lovely to be recognized. It's always very, very nice indeed to have that moment of somebody saying, you know, you've done this well, thank you. And to this day, I don't know who put me forward. I don't know who seconded it. I, I don't, you know, I just don't know, but it's, um, it's lovely to be recognized. It was a brilliant, brilliant day. And uh, we went, my husband and my two children got to come and we were walking along the strand in the early morning with all our, you know, hats, cause you have to wear a hat if you go and get it down to Buckingham Palace um, was given it by Prince Charles but as we were walking down there was a chap sitting on the side of the uh, of the road and uh, he turned to my girls and he said oh I know where you're going it's order of the British Empire today off for an award what's daddy done to deserve an award and my girls looked absolutely horrified looked straight at him and said daddy hasn't done anything mummy's the smart one and just carried on walking and I remember just thinking love him love him that's absolutely great but you know that natural unconscious bias isn't it is what's your dad done to get this and it was their, their response was brilliant I did feel a bit sorry for my husband I was like sorry you are you are all right too you are all right but uh, but that no, was great it was a lovely day lovely to be recognized and and I think where I'm so proud of it now is, you know, five years down the line, six years down the line, it's opened so many doors for me to be able to help even more. And I think that's lovely. You know, I get to go and speak at universities. I get to help build um, build entrepreneurial plans for people. Um, we've just started working with a soccer charity now, which is phenomenal. Um, and I don't think I'd have had those opportunities had had I not been awarded that. So it's um, it's good. It's it's been it's come with great. It comes with some bad things as well because I I can't charge as much now for public speaking. She feel you should do it. Just terrible, really, isn't it? Before I just used to charge away, and then the people go, "Could you?" And you have, to, "Oh, go on then." <laughs> it's cost me money, but it's very lovely to have. <laughs> well, 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 well. At least thank you for your your generosity in being with us today. We appreciate that. And so, look, you've developed so many programs. You've been you've been successful in so many areas. And I know this is, I feel this is just the beginning. I mean, you're just coming into your, into your, into the best of the best. So what drives you? You know, I think some, I think some of it is fear of failure coming right back round to the beginning. I, I just, I just don't like to fail. I like to, I like to achieve. I like to get it done. Um, I like to set a good example, and especially for my girls. I think my mum set an excellent example to me about you had to work, you had to get up, you had to do it, and you had to get on with it. Um, and I think I just want to follow that through. But I, yeah, there's, there's definitely something. There's I can't sit idly. I don't watch much television. I don't, you know, I, I like to just be constantly on the go. I like to be taking things in. I like to be seeing people. I like to be, I like to just achieve. And I don't mean achieving as in I've got this, I've got that. Just, I like to set myself a goal, go after it and then achieve it. And I, and I think that's been, that's, um, yeah, it's been, it's been rewarding. And I think 
the last 18 months, I've probably struggled more than ever before because it's been harder to set those new achievements. It's almost been kind of just stay alive. You know, we've worked in live sport and it's been incredibly difficult in, in the last 18 months when events have been cancelled. And I mean, the Premier League was called off. You know, it was there, there was no contingency planning you could have done for these last two years. I, I defy anyone that had a plan for a global pandemic in place. Um, but I think it's those moments where you look and it's been harder for me to set myself new goals in these last 18 months. Um, and I miss that. I miss that drive of being able to think where to next and what to do. So uh, I'm hoping the world continues to keep coming together and then I can set myself some new targets. But you say it's, it's not over yet. I've got a little bit left in me yet, but um, some exciting things ahead. I think it's a, I think it's a little bit more than a little. Susanna, <laughs> oh, bless you. Thank knowing you, you it's got to be full on everything, 100%, 1000% or more. So what two tips would you give to someone starting out who wants to be successful? Do something you're passionate about. Make sure it's absolutely something that's in your heart because that's what gets you up in the morning. Um, don't make it about money. Do it about something you're passionate about. And then the other, the other is just do it. Don't talk about doing it. Don't think about doing it. Just do it. Get up and do it. And make the phone calls you procrastinated over. Don't make the, send the emails you think you should do. Just do it. Believe in what you do and do it. And it's as simple as that. Just do it. Just do it. And we have quite a few people, Brian, our audience listening here from direct sales. Is that the same message or is there anything extra you could give to them in direct sales? I think for that, it's about trusting your instinct and it's about doing what comes naturally to you. If you are not a born salesperson, practice the phone call, practice what you're going to say, maybe do an email to start with, maybe start on text message, however you want to do it, but get comfortable. But if you are doing something, it's back to that passion. If you're doing something you're passionate about and you're selling a product that you genuinely love and would use yourself, you're just a 100% advocate of that. So then it becomes very easy to say, oh, actually, would you like to use this? Why don't you give it a go? Because you're your own ambassador. You're, you know, you're there saying, this is great. I love it. Would you like to try too? And that becomes really, really authentic. And I think that's the key in anything. As long as you're authentic to who you are, and as long as you deliver what, what you think you can and, and in a way that you're comfortable with, then I think that, you know, that world is absolutely, absolutely fit for you. But there is, there is that moment where I would say to people, don't, don't try instantly overnight and become the world's best salesperson by picking up the phone when you haven't got a clue what you want to say. You know, practice makes perfect and there's a reason for that, isn't it? And it's so cheesy, isn't it? Fail to prepare, prepare to fail. So learn from other people, take advice from what's worked, make sure you sell and you join the company that you genuinely feel passionate about. And, and then, as I say, you just become your own mini advocate. You are the influencer because you use the product yourself. So therefore, why not influence other people to do it? It's, it's an easy, it's a no-brainer, as they say. And I like that word, the influencer, because I look at myself, I'm in contrary to what most people think. I was shy, I was introvert, and uh, sales was not really my, my natural my natural path, but I believe that the only time you have to sell something is when you don't believe in it. Otherwise, what you're doing is you're, you're, you're talking about your passion and you're influencing people because you actually believe in it. So I, I'm a great believer that if you, once you believe 100% in what you do, you should be the best advocate of that to, to, to anywhere else. So as we come to the end of this uh, conversation, I know we can talk for hours. Um, how do you handle challenges 
because you know we've got to deal with challenges you talked about the pandemic and everything being shut down we've had so many life is full of challenges what's your style to handle challenges honestly head on and it's not right for everybody but if there's something that just doesn't look right it doesn't feel right it's not going away there's no point ignoring it there's no point procrastinating around it you just have to meet it head on and deal with it and as i said to you you know no one gets up deliberately to have a bad day people don't deliberately make catastrophic mistakes but if you've done it you just have to deal with it and if there's a challenge that's there i think the more you dance around it sometimes the bigger the challenge can become you know there's been times when i've not wanted to do something i've not wanted to make the phone call or send the email because i think oh Oh, this might go wrong but actually full-on right this is it this is a scenario here we're going to do how we're going to deal with it let's deal with it because ultimately the result will be the result but I think if you meet those challenges head-on um, sensibly calmly uh, and maybe sometimes it's you, you you go head on, but then you need to take a step back and say, right, here are my options now. What do I do? So, you know, I've learned over the years to act in haste can be disastrous. You have to take it slightly more slowly and slightly more considered. Um, but yeah, as a whole, I think, yes, I, I definitely like to go at it and see, uh, see how I can achieve success. Absolutely. And it's always a way, you know, Albert Einstein, Albert Einstein said in the middle of every difficulty lies opportunity. And I've always thought, wherever there's a challenge, there's an opportunity uh, right there. But you've got to look at it, like say, and you won't get it if you don't go head on and go and, and, and delve into it. What's the problem here? Why is it not working? What's wrong? So, Susanna, as we come to the end, just uh, on a personal, what's your favorite dish? That's a tricky one, isn't it? What's my favourite dish? Do you know, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a food substance rather than a dish because I absolutely, I love seafood and I love pasta and all that. But there's one thing I couldn't live without, and that's the humble egg. I love an omelette. I love a poached egg. I love a fried egg. I love a boiled egg. And if there was someone could say you've only got one thing you can eat, I'm going to the egg. That's it. Bit of salt and pepper, but the humble egg is without doubt just one of the best, most versatile things in the world. It's I'm easily pleased. I don't get me wrong. Love a bit of lobster. Love a glass of champagne. But the humble egg for me is probably the, the one thing I wouldn't go without. Okay, well, I remember you telling me that. And um, I've got to teach you how to do some cooking there still. I have to do your eggs in the salad. I'm holding you to that 100%. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've, we've got to get there. Well, Susanna, it's been a pleasure and really talking to you. You have been a wealth of information. It is, it's, it's, it's so, so exciting to hear from you what you've got to do. Just before we finish up, any last messages you'd want to say, share with our audience? I just think coming back to those those three words at the beginning, you know, if you want to be successful, you've got to be committed, you've got to be determined, and you've got to believe you can do it. And I think if you put those ingredients together, um, then uh, then yeah, then you, you you can't you can't help but succeed. If I'm honest. Thank you. Well, thank you for being on the on the call. And so, hey, everyone, you've, you've heard this message yet again. What decisions are you going to take from this call and all those nuggets of information? You've not just listened. This is not just anybody. This is someone who's gone from being on the phones for Royal Mail to being an entrepreneur, building a business, running organizations, advising the government, giving you some truths about success. But knowledge is only powerful when you use it. So please do not just let this lead to learning. Let it lead to action. The truth about success. This is Ayola Sende signing out. 
I hope you make the decisions and take the right actions because you were born to succeed. Thank you.